when the Buddha was asked why some people are wise and make good decisions in their life that lead to more contentment and happiness, and why some people in life just make unskillful decisions that leads to more um, struggle. He said that those who ask a lot of questions grow in wisdom. Now, the kind of questions that they ask and who they ask them of makes all the difference in the world, of course. And what he's pointing to mostly is that we have questions for ourselves. What, what is this life all about? What's, what's the purpose of this life? What is, what is this experience? What does it mean? And how do I relate to the conditions of life in such a way as to um, minimize suffering, struggle? How do I live wisely? Primarily, we ask ourselves, we look deeply within our own heart to ask those questions, and even if we don't have an answer, or if we don't articulate a particular answer, we at least are turning our heart and mind in that direction. T.S. Eliot expressed this kind of searching quite beautifully in his uh, poem, Four Quartets, when he writes, We shall not cease from exploration. In the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. In some ways, what we are doing here in this process is exploring. We're exploring this heart, this mind, this body, this human life. And we're looking at the same terrain over and over again. And yet the more we look, the more we discover, and the more we understand. So tonight I want to explore a little bit the terrain of our intrepid exploration. Because as Carl Sagan, one of my current Dharma favorites, has articulated, you know Carl Sagan is the patron saint of curiosity. (laughs) He says, uh, avoidable human misery is more often caused not so much by stupidity as by ignorance, particularly ignorance about ourselves. And I think we all know what what he means, both individually and collectively, because we know ourselves so little. We just make, you know, uh, we're just not very careful. So it's mindfulness that does this that initiates this exploration, that remembers to just take a look at the way things have come to be for me for now. And this is really important to understand that this is where the search begins and ends. 
is here in this experience, whatever it is. And we've all had the first and most important insight repeatedly because it takes seeing things several times before we actually get it. We are lost in thought much of the time. Anybody not had that insight? So, what we discover is that when we're lost in thought, we're lost. We're not paying attention to our life. We're living out some deep conditioning, reaffirming conditioning that we've picked up along the way. And so much of the discovery, the initial discovery is recognizing where the mind has been hanging out, what terrain of torment we've been cultivating, and finding a way to unhook, disengage, let go, and come back into the present moment for what it, and see it for what it really is. It takes repeated observation, as you know, to just be here now. I remember reading uh, an article some years ago about a botanist uh, traveling across the continental U.S. back in the 1800s. And he lamented the fact that he had to ride a horse because he was moving so fast (laughs) he didn't have time to really see what he was, to look at what he was seeing. And so he missed most of what he passed by. And so too for us, if we're only, if our life is just passing by in a rapid unspooling of conditions, we just appear as a silhouette, a shadow on the wall, and there's just no three-dimensional substance to ourselves. As Georgia O'Keeffe says, nobody sees a flower, really. It is so small. We haven't time. And to see takes time. Like to have a friend takes time. And a lot of this practice, a lot of this journey, a lot of this exploration can be seen as befriending ourselves making a friend of ourselves, all of ourselves. You know, not just what we like about ourselves, but so too with friends. You know, friends are friends and, well, they have their quirks, they have their foibles, they have their... But they're friends. And so we accept, we acknowledge, we work with, we allow... We're open to, we willingly observe, connect, just like we do with ourself in practice. But one of the one of the discoveries we make in our exploration is that this movie of our life, 
is really still photos, one after the other. There really is no morphing from one to another. It's a moment after moment after moment after moment, and each moment is unique and distinct. So when the narrative of our life becomes the noting of moment after moment, the continuity that seems so impenetrable and so rigid and so solid and so fixed becomes workable. And the whole the whole becomes seen as pixels of phenomena. So back in the 1800s there was this famous um, scholar, Swiss scholar, named Louis Agassiz, and he made his name and fame by studying glaciers in Switzerland. And the way of learning prior to his time was to read all that had been written before and that qualified you to be a learned person. But he understood that we learn by observation and we understand by observing closely. So his method of teaching was to encourage his students to study nature rather than read the books of what had been written before. So he came to America and he was on a trip around America speaking about glaciers and his way of study. And everywhere he went, he became very popular. Even in all these little Midwestern towns, he'd stop and give a talk. And people formed Louis Agassiz clubs as a way of learning and encouraging the study of nature. Harvard University heard about him, invited him to teach. He accepted, and graduate students wanted him as their teacher. So the competition was fierce, and it involved a personal interview with Mr. Agassiz. Samuel Scudder was one of those students who applied for mentor, mentoring by Mr. Agassiz. And he wrote of his experience, because when he went to the interview, he was asked when he would like to begin, and of course the correct answer was now, whereupon Mr. Agassiz went to the shelves of his office, picked a jar in which there was a fish, a pickled fish. And he took that pickled fish, and he put it on a pan, he put it in front of Mr. Scudder, and he said, look at this, and then he left the room. <laughs> Samuel Scudder wrote of his experience he says in ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish half an hour passed an hour another hour the fish began to look loathsome <laughs> I turned it over and around I looked it in the face ghastly from behind, beneath, above sideways at three quarters view just as ghastly I was in despair. I wasn't able to use a magnifying glass as instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. 
It seemed the most limited field of study. I pushed my finger down his throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned later and listened to Scudder recount what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. <laughs> I was piqued. I was mortified, he writes. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to my task with the will and discovered one new thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly, and when toward its close, the professor inquired, Do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not. But I see how little I saw before. The following day, having thought of the fish through most of the night, <laughs> Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish, he announced to Agassiz, had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, Agassiz said, obviously pleased. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not part. So we have this fish. Remember to look. Remember to observe. Remember to take a look over and over and over again at what is going on in this experience called my life, this moment. It is through observation that we move from the conceptual idea of a fish to the understanding of its nature. And it is through, under, through observation that we will move from the conceptual understanding of me and my life to the real experience of the way things have come to be for me for now. Some years after reading that article, a friend of mine was cooking on an archaeological dig in central Maine. And... I went to visit her, and central Maine is a vast forest, nearly uninhabited year-round. But on one of these small lakes, up behind Katahdin, the northernmost mountain on the Appalachian Trail, the archaeologists had set up these little digs around this pond on the shore of this little pond. In an archaeological dig, you know, they, they mark out these four-foot-by-four-foot four squares, stakes in the ground, and they sweep off the forest the debris on the, on the ground, and then they start excavating with this little trowel a millimeter at a time, a millimeter at a time, scraping down the soil. And when they find anything of interest or value or something other than dirt... They catalog its location, its elevation, and where it is in the plot. And they pick it up with tweezers, put it in a baggie, mark it, 
tag it, take it back to the university for observation during the winter. And so they had six or eight of these holes in the ground, and they were being dug down, and they were at various depths, and they were picking up, well, debris, stuff that they'd found. And what they were finding were, you know, little pieces of stone, uh, the, the little sticks, little burnt end of sticks, uh, a few little bones, uh, not much, really, not, not much. But they were cataloging everything they found. In the winter, the archaeologists came back and they took a core sample down through the ice of the pond, down into the muck at the bottom of the pond to get a core sample of what's on the bottom of the pond. So that they could discover the layers of pollen that had been laid down on the surface of the pond over the last several centuries. To know what kind of plants were growing around that pond at what time. So in their analysis of all these little chips of stone and chips of bone and little pieces of burnt stick and the location of them, along with the core samples of the pollen at the bottom of the pond and the identification of the wood fragments that they found in the hole and where at what depth they were, they pieced together an understanding of what they were discovering. Come to find out, from all these little bits and pieces, these were remnants of campfires that the Clovis people, these are predecessors to the Native Americans or the First Nations people, the Clovis people had campfires in that area 10 to 12,000 years before as the glacier was receding from New England. They were on the edge of the glacier as it receded. And they were hunting the last of the uh, big, you know, woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers, or New England saber-toothed tigers, whatever they are. <laughs> and uh, they were finding turtle bones uh, in, the, in, the, in the campfire. And the pieces of stone that they found are called chert. And it's a kind of stone that was available there, close to the surface, and it's stone that you can chip into arrowheads, knife blades, spear points, and make sharp edge. And this stone, this chert from central Maine, has been found all over the United States because those people harvested it, traded it with other Native American tribes, and it got distributed around the country. Now, this understanding of the, 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 the movement of humanity over the face of the earth was made possible by picking up chips of stone, burnt sticks, and little pieces of bone. When we go excavating in our personal history, as much of our observation is, and we pick up these little fragments of memories and feelings and seemingly insignificant sensations and thoughts and whatever. We actually are reconstructing the personal history of our humanity. 
and discovering the conditioning laid down in this being from the time of birth. And we come upon the, the personal history of our family, of our family conditioning, our social conditioning, our cultural conditioning, our religion of birth, our, the economic system, the weather we lived in. And we discover and piece together history that we'd long forgotten, but layers of conditioning, layers of belief, layers of experience, layers of assumptions, layers of emotion that we lived through, we learned from. And all, a lot of this stuff has been long forgotten. Never, you know, I'm sure you've noticed recovering memories of events that you hadn't thought of in 20, 30 years, 40 years. It's significant because it's still there. It's having its conditioning effect upon us. And to the extent that we do not recognize it or we don't see it, it's having an unseen, unconscious, unaware, but powerfully conditioning effect upon how we live our life today. This greater intimacy with our personal history is important because Sam Keen, another psychonaut, I call him, explorers of the psyche, says, to break the spell of the personality, I must recover my personal history. I must demythologize the individual, the family, and the social myths that have informed me. And I must be willing to become disillusioned with my images of myself. And to know myself, I must begin to discriminate between my raw experience and the informing narrative myths I've lived by. So as we practice just remembering and noticing, and we come upon these layers of conditioning in the heart, we, we see them. But we see them without any spin, without any social narrative. We see them as they were felt raw at the time of, that they happen. And there is this quality of, uh, I call it, it's called ujukata, but straightness of mind that accompanies uh, mindful awareness, which means or prevents us from deceiving ourselves, from spinning the evidence in any way, but this is the way it was. This is what you really felt. This is how it really was growing up. And we've never seen that. So this personal history review really exposes, you know, our culture, class, education, political, economic, religious <coughs> training that we have acquired for as long as we've been living. Again, Carl Sagan says, you know, we have you have to know the past in order to understand the present.
You know, when you think of, when you read about, you hear what's going on in the Middle East, and we have these two cultures, many cultures probably, more, clashing. And there's this religious and social, political conditioning on one side, confronting political and social conditioning on another side, and even building upon hurt and grievance and resentment and anger for centuries. So someone born now, or in the last 20 years, into any of the tribes or cultures, societies over there, is burdened with the baggage of their ancestors and the pain and the fear and the prejudice and the discrimination. How how can they ever be free of it? Politically. How can someone in authority free them from that conditioning? Impossible. Impossible. And so this conflict goes on. And it's been going on for hundreds of years. And, well, you can see for yourself. Then there are the Orkney Islands in northern Scotland. I've never been there. I've heard about them. But I've heard that these are an old civilization that is very happy and content because they have abundant fertile soil. They have tropical weather, almost, in northern Scotland because of the, the, the flow of the ocean there. They have ample fish. It is just a beautiful, abundant place to live. And people live there in harmony, have lived there in harmony, for a long time. And people don't move away from there because that's their conditioning. Who can say that those in the Orkney Islands or those in the Middle East are free to become who they are other than their condition? Cannot. So we too are confronted with this conditioning and we think we are free. We think we are ourselves. We think we make our own decisions. We think we have our own uh, self-determination. Don Juan and Carlos Castaneda were two other great Dharma teachers of the last century. (laughs) And Don Juan was speaking to Carlos when he said, You see, he went on, we only have two alternatives. We either take everything for granted, or we don't. If we follow the first, we end up bored to death with ourselves and with the world. If we follow the second and erase personal history, we create a mist around us, a very exciting and mysterious state in which nobody knows the limits of what's possible. (coughs) When those archaeologists hit the bottom of the hole, bedrock, they'd gone as far as they could go. But geologists have another way of looking or other tools for looking deeper. And we, too, must persevere in our looking 
beneath our cultural conditioning, our cultural family conditioning. What does that mean? That means that we keep paying attention to moment-to-moment experience, investigating our experience, how we understand it, how we respond to it or react to it, and like our, like geologists digging in bedrock, this bedrock to an ordinary view, from an ordinary view of, an, of a non-geologist, looks solid. It looks impenetrable. It's just rock. And it looks like it's just there and been there forever, not moving. So too, as we discover our, well, something like bedrock, of our being, we come upon the conditioning of our gender, our sex, our species, our ethnicity, and our age. Well, I I am a white, senior, human, cis male, heterosexual. I am so blinded by my own conditioning, I can't see the world any other way. But do I know how I am conditioned by that those conditions? Or do I have the ability to recognize how others are conditioned by other conditions? Well, when my bedrock conditioning meets others' bedrock conditioning, it's like the tectonic plates of the world bumping into each other male and female and ethnic groups and genders and sex and, well, age. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of... We learn a lot from that bumping up against each other. And just as the tectonic plates moving over the face of the earth bump up against each other and create the Himalayas, the Rocky Mountains, so too as we bump into each other's deeper layers of conditioning, well, things happen. There's this interesting phenomena happening in Hawaii. The tectonic plates under the Pacific Ocean are moving there just as they're moving over the rest of the earth. But there's a fissure in the earth crust. There's a place where the molten magma from the center of the earth comes to the surface through the tectonic plate. And so we have this string of islands from the northwest, the oldest islands, to the southeast, the youngest islands. And as the tectonic plate has moved slowly to the northwest, the magma coming up through the fissure has created an island on the tectonic plate. The tectonic plate has moved, the fissure is still open, it's creating another island, and we have this long string of islands called the Hawaiian Islands, that has emerged from the center of the earth. And they're all made from the same stuff. They're all made from the same molten 
magma, and they all are completely different. What's that got to do with us? <laughs> bear with me, bear with me. <laughs> we were once molten. We were once a molten flow of phenomena. We all had the same experiences to grow from, to select from, to pick and choose our our way of being. We're doing it, we're continuing that selection in this lifetime. But we came into this world with a baseline mentality that had already been selected. In Buddhist understanding, it's called our mental legacy. And as we know, if you, and I mentioned, I think earlier that When you see a young child just born, a few hours old, a few days old, you can see their personality start to emerge long before you've taught them how to behave or misbehave. And they come into this world with a package. So did we. Where did this baseline mentality come from? Well, the infinite past where some being made decisions to be kind, be angry, be generous, be self-pitying, be frustrated, be disappointed, whatever, whatever it is that beings have chosen to do has imprinted on their mind. And in the Buddhist understanding of things, as that mind has conditioned moment after moment after moment after moment from life after life after life after life and have arrived in the present moment, we have a deeply conditioned mental legacy of wholesome and unwholesome experience. Personally selected every step of the way. Chosen due to causes and conditions which seemed to be imperative, but nevertheless, there was a choice. And just as we, too, are reaffirming some of our conditioning and dismantling some of our conditioning, so, too, will this stream of consciousness move on. What is it that has been so molten and is now so solid within us? As I mentioned, it is the choices we've made to imprint on the mind. And while we've all had the same opportunity in this life even to see what's going on, to respond in, with wisdom and compassion and understanding, or out of deeply conditioned reactive habit. And as we continue making decisions in responding to the present moment, our personality becomes more and more solid. So we look at this and we see 
how we are doing that, and we can understand how we arrived in this world having done that before, or someone having done that before. One of the conditions that we have all chosen is to appreciate the Dharma. Why is it that we can hear the Dharma and resonate with it and say, this has got something of value to me? And our neighbors, other family members, a vast majority of people around us hear the Dharma as foreign, alien, harmful, dangerous, no value. Why is that? Prior conditioning. Prior choices. We've been at this a long time, friends. We've been at this a long time. That's why when we hear the Dharma, we can say, I've never heard this before, but I've always believed it. I've always known it. Carl Sagan also discovered and realized that we're all made of the same stuff. Everything in this entire universe, every molecule of, every cell, every molecule of phenomena is made of stardust. Everything in the room, the room, the floor, everything is just stardust. So too, we all have this common heritage of intention and choice. Life offers us this endless kaleidoscope of changing conditions from which to pick and choose our life, from which to create our life, to make of it what we will. And these conditions unfold from incalculable sources. You know, I often talk about causes and conditions without identifying just what they are. They're everything. If we were to just try to articulate some of the conditions that allows this retreat to take place, we would have to include everyone we've ever come in contact with in our entire life, everything we've learned and the source of everything we've learned, everything we've eaten and the, the, the history that allowed us to ever get that, And you can see that it is only because everything has unfolded the way everything has that we're able to be here. We can't even identify. We can't can't imagine the intricacy of the causes and conditions that give rise to this happening. But we're here. We chose it. We're responding. We're reacting. We are becoming it. it It is becoming us through our choice, our choices. And so in every moment, we are building on old phenomena, old causes, old conditions, and creating new conditions to influence the future. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes otherwise. There really is no limit, though. We have infinite possibilities in front of us. We have infinite possibilities at any moment if we understand that, if we see the possibilities, if we're open to the possibilities, anything is possible. 
So why is it that we look around and we see how alike we are? We see how different we are? Why is it all being made of the same stuff? We fear each other. Why is it? when we have this unborn potential of flexing possibilities within us and so does everyone else why do we fix them as who we think they are why do we fix or solidify or reify ourselves as who we think we are or aren't it's really amazing isn't it that we that we get so stuck in this view of ourselves when in every moment there's endless possibilities. The Buddha said, this entire universe is to be found in this fathom long or fathom tall body. This entire universe. Meaning, whatever can be experienced, whatever can be felt, whatever can be known, happens right here. We don't have to go there. We don't have to go anywhere. It's all accessible right here. I have a kind of a little thought experiment I'd like to lead you through. Just for a moment, just think of, just recall all of the difficulties and the struggle and the pain of your life. And you've, re- you've been looking at some of it over the past few days. Just all the all the unhappiness and struggle and disappointment and frustration and pain and emotional turmoil and it's, it's just well it's just overwhelming isn't it we all have experienced far more than anyone should ever be asked to carry right and it's painful it's not this is not make believe this is really deeply disturbing stuff. Now, turn your attention to all of the pleasure and the enjoyment and the happiness that you experience. All the sense pleasures and economic pleasures and emotional emotional delight and spiritual goodies and just the abundance of experiences and happiness and pleasure that we have experienced in our life. This too is just endless. It's just overwhelming. It's just phenomenal. You don't have to be 70 to have a lot. You know, even at age 20, that's a lot. Right? With all of that, Shabkar was a uh, Tibetan wandering monk, ascetic, real well-known in Tibet. He said this, he says, no matter how much happiness and sorrow has been experienced, how amazing that this mind has not been impaired nor improved in the slightest. <laughs> I mean, think about that. 
<laughs> we have suffered all this pain, we've enjoyed all this pleasure, and the mind hasn't been improved or impaired a bit. Right? Still works, still registers the present moment, it's still fresh every moment. The mind is just here to take it in. Why do we fear anything? Why do we fear pain? We've experienced everything. Why are we still seeking pleasure? We have experienced it all many, 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 many times. Right? Isn't that amazing? I mean, what are we doing here? Trying to avoid pain and have more pleasure. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, we know that, but really? It involves a lot of struggle. Right? So you've got to stop for a minute and just take a look and say, okay, been doing this for you know, a few decades this lifetime, hundreds of lifetimes before that. For what purpose? <clears throat> what have we learned from all this to guide our way forward as we explore the future? Because, hey, it's not over yet. The journey's not over, right? We're still exploring. We're still coming to know what has not yet been known. This universe of our own heart is this expansive, open, endless, empty possibility to be filled with choices, experience. Carl Sagan again reminds us in all of our searching and exploration, the only thing we've found that makes this emptiness and endless opportunities bearable is each other. Trungpa Rinpoche encourages us with, this, with these words. He says, Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified. Sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. So let's sit for a moment, let the words 